This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Andy Herndon, a former evangelical pastor and the director of the upcoming documentary project, The Exvangelicals. This is a great conversation and we'll get to it as quick as we can. But first, let me just run through how you can follow me on social media. You can follow me directly on Twitter at BRChastain. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at ExvangelicalPod. You can like the show on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ExvangelicalPod. And you can also join the Facebook group at Facebook.com slash groups slash Exvangelical. Finally, you can do two other things to help support the show. You can support the show via Patreon at Patreon.com slash ExvangelicalPod. And you can rate and review the show on iTunes. iTunes is still sort of the premier place for podcasts, even though some places like Spotify are gunning for Apple. One of the things that really helps any podcaster you listen to is going and rating and reviewing their show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It helps the algorithm, helps make the show more discoverable. It really does make a difference. So if you could do that after this show, that would be great. Please tell others about the show as well. That's another great way to get the show out there. Uh, I will have some more information about some exciting things that we'll be doing after episode 100 of the show, but I'm just teasing that a little bit here. Finally, sound editing and production for this show was provided by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, let's get into it. Everyone and welcome to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Andy Herndon. He is the director of the upcoming documentary, The Exvangelicals. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm, uh, we've we've chatted a little bit in the past. I'm excited to talk uh, a bit about your uh, your project. But before we get into that, I want to get into the story of you. So tell me a little bit about your your early childhood and sort of what your first ex- exposure uh, to religion was. I, I familiarized myself a little bit with a couple of the sh- videos that you've released recently, but I'd love to get into a little more detail on the podcast. Um, I grew up the son of two, uh, two Baptist preacher kids. Um, both my parents were grew up in the Baptist evangelical world. Both were pretty disillusioned by it. So we were always in church, around church, kind of your Christmas and Easter mm-hmm. type thing going on. Um, they, 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 they'd been burned by the church, both my parents had. Mm-hmm. And so it was always kind of the thing where uh, my, my dad's parents always bugged me. They need to be in church, need to be in church. And anytime with my grandparents, my grandpa would be preaching, I'd see him and I'd be around it. Um, the church actually destroyed my, my mom's side of the family. The, the church destroyed her parents' marriage and mm. they ended up divorcing and leaving ministry just because the stress of being in ministry was so tough. And so I, I grew up around it and then I started going to a Christian school and that's really kind of where my, my uh, indoctrination began. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a, I, I, I don't know if there's ever been anything like this. It was a Pentecostal Southern Baptist Christian school in Ventura, California, which is just North of LA. 
and um, very typical Christian school. Uh, we did, we took field trips to um, to uh, a, a protest abortion clinics. Like Fridays, there were certain Fridays where you get a permission slip and you go, and all these kids would go and protest abortion clinics and very right wing. Um, one of my earliest memories of remembering kind of my indoctrination was as a third or fourth grader being told that um, our parents were sinning if they were voting for Bill Clinton mm. back in 1992. And my mother, who, you know, the reason they put us in the Christian schools more, they didn't want us in the public schools. It wasn't really for religious reasons. I remember she was so furious about this. But I kind of, I just, I took that to heart um, because my family was very dysfunctional. And there were some people who looked very functional, looked very good telling me these things. So I just kind of took it to heart. Mm-hmm. And um, soon after soon after that, my, my, my family uh, kind of broke apart. My mother uh, fell into drug use. Uh, she had a lot. She had her brother and um, my grandpa, my grandpa, her dad died within six weeks of each other. So she started using prescription drugs and that, that completely tore up our family. Hmm. Um, the whole time I'm still going to Christian school um, and my parents ended up splitting up because of that which my dad then decided to get us back into church. And so we started going to a, a small community church that had a really good kids program um, in Ventura, along with going to a, a Christian school. And I, I, I just embraced it because my family was so dysfunctional. And there was all these people there who loved me and who were there for me, would do anything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just, it became my family. And it's something I didn't even realize until I started start going to counseling and realizing kind of deconstructing my religious trauma, why, I'd seen so much messed up stuff in the church, yet I was so faithful to the church for so long mm-hmm. was because it was my family. Yeah. They, had, they had brought me through so much. I mean, for all the things we can say about evangelical churches, th- th- there there was some good things that happened to me. They got me through those formative years mm-hmm. um, somewhat well, ad- I don't even want to say well-adjusted, not a complete jerk, I guess. <laughs> uh, I knew the difference between basic right and wrong, you know? So I, I, I just, I really kind of embraced that. And, um, I, I was always hearing the gospel. And then I, I think I was about 13. Um, the Christian school I was going to took a bunch of us middle schoolers at the time to this conference called the choir, of the fire, hmm. um, which a lot of listeners are probably very, very familiar with Ron Luce and the choir, of the fire. And it was, and this is the first time I've ever seen like big, like Christian culture, like music and there's hip hop Christian music. And it was around the same time DC talk released Jesus freak. So they're playing that like crazy. I'm like, Oh, this is great. This is cool. And, and that night they did an altar call and I accepted Jesus into my heart. And they gave us this pamphlet of like, Hey, you're listening to all this music. You need to smash these and listen to these bands now. And here are their CDs. Come buy them. They told you to smash them. Oh yeah. Um, at the Christian school I went to, uh, they did this whole after that, this whole thing about secular music, how evil it was and how we needed to, we literally had this thing where we, we smashed our CDs and tapes and we, we got rid of them. Yeah. Uh, I was a huge, I was a huge fan of queen at the time. Um, I love queen and Freddie Mercury had just died. And I was literally told by my seventh grade history teacher, I had to smash all my queen CDs and I, pardon the language, but this is exactly what she said. I had to smash all my queen CDs because Freddie Mercury was a faggot. And so that's what I did. And, um, that's what, that's what I believe. And that was, that was just the culture I was in. 
you know, the Christian school I went to use the Becca books. We were taught that, you know, FDR was a communist and all, all this stuff. And that was just kind of the, the, the lane I was in and I, I embraced it fully. And, uh, it was, in, it was at church every time I could be at church. And my dad soon remarried after my parents divorced. And, uh, that, that was a complicated situation in and of itself. And I want to talk about that because there was the person who married was, softball coach at the Christian school I was going to, and he was leading worship at the time and they got kind of weird and complicated. So I'm not going to get into that, but sure. you guys can assume what happened. Um, <clears throat> we ended up moving to Las Vegas, uh, for a job transfer where I then got involved in a, in Las Vegas, Nevada, a Southern Baptist mega church, which they exist in Las Vegas. Southern Baptists are actually very, very strong in Las Vegas. It, it was kind of amazing. And I was in this before I'd been in smaller youth groups, um, you know, 10 to 20, um, and this is like youth group, you know, 200 kids, loud music, full on band, all this stuff. And I just, I, I really just embraced that culture. And I was, I started working for the church as a janitor. I learned how to play guitar. I was leading worship. I was on the student leadership council. They commissioned me to be the president of the Bible club at my school. A bunch of us were starting Bible clubs at all the public high schools. And I was, you know, the, the president of my Bible club two years in a row and we were going to you know, win kids to Jesus. Um, I wish I could find this footage. They actually, the local ABC affiliate did a whole story on me and my youth pastor and how we were starting these Bible clubs in the high schools. And wow, it was around this, around see you at the poll time. And I, I've actually called ABC trying to find that footage. And it's, it was from like 97, 98. So it's hard to find. Hmm. And then the stuff I said, like, Oh, the public schools are so evil and we need a battle against the culture. And I was a culture warrior. Um, I, I really, I really wanted to see, the schools changed for Jesus. I wanted to see people won to Jesus. And I was, I mean, I was an asshole. I really was. <laughs> By the time I hit high school, I was a jerk to people. You need Jesus. You need, you know, and I, I was good at, you know, getting kids at youth group excited and, and the other Christians at my high school, my public high school excited. But man, people, people call me the Bible boy. And that was my nickname in high school. And, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of my, my background and my exposure with, um, you know, evangelicalism and religion. And I was, oh, I, er, during that time too, about age 17, my grandma and grandpa, um, they really were encouraging me to go into ministry because mm. they wanted, they wanted my dad to go into ministry. And, um, he ended up not, he went to Bible college. He actually met my mom at Bible college and then they only stayed for a year and then I showed up. So that wasn't going to work out. Um, so they wanted me to go, go into the ministry. So by age 16, I was at a summer camp. I committed to full-time, full-time Christian vocational ministry. Mm, mm -hmm. And that's the path I was on from 16 on. My youth pastor was raising me up to do that. Everybody knew I was, oh, I was, Andy's going to be a pastor. He's going to be a youth pastor. And that's, that's the path I was on. I was, I was going to do that. And, uh, that was yeah quite a wild ride. Um, I think back. Yeah. So I was, I was sort of similar. I, I was sort of that on fire for, for Jesus sort of high school or two. I went to see you at the poll. We didn't have FCA in our school, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, mm -hmm. we had, but we did have FCS, which was Fellowship of Christian Students, which was basically FCA, but without the athletic stuff. I don't know why we didn't have FCA, but whatever. Same difference, really, right? Mm -hmm. But um, how did you sort of, did you feel that sort of pressure on you? Like as a, as being this like youth leader and really taking to heart those messages in, in Timothy about 
I forget whether it's first or second Timothy about don't let anyone look down upon you for, because you're young. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, absolutely. It was, I, I, I wanted to, you know, raise up a, you know, generation for Christ and we are going to be the ones who like, literally, I believe that my generation was going to be the generation that, that, that preceded the second coming of Christ because we were going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and it was going to be my, me and my peers and we were going to do it. We were on fire for the Lord. And, you know, during my junior and senior year, I started getting really into John Piper, um, you know, reading like the, let the nations be glad, desiring God. Mm-hmm. And then that, that just pumped you up more where, you know, Piper, he really was all about, you know, laying down your life for the gospel, giving up everything for the gospel, being willing to be willing to be in poverty for the gospel. It's all about the gospel. You, you know, this whole Christian hedonism thing he did where you mm-hmm. only find true joy in the gospel and nothing else and anything else is an imposter. And yeah. I took that to heart. I mean, I, I was committed to never owning a house, never owning a car, only buying clothes from the thrift store, just this, this impoverished lifestyle because we're, we're in, we're in a war for souls and we need to win people for Jesus, which was weird because he was a Calvinist and you know, how <laughs> right. does that work out theologically? But, um, yeah, the, the pressure, the pressure was intense and I, I don't, I don't think I ever realized how much the, pre- how intense the pressure was until I left, you know, mm. decades later. Yeah. So you said you were on this path and you like really from 16 on were we're on this, this path towards full-time ministry. So where does that lead you from high school? What, what comes next after that? Do you go to Bible college? What's, what, what's next for you in your life? The plan was to go to Bible college. Um, I was going to stay a year at community college. My senior year of high school, I went to community college instead of high school um, at a program that was in the, my, my school district in Las Vegas. And my plan was to do one more year of that, knock out some more prereqs, and then go on to you know Tennessee and go to Union University in Dixon, Tennessee, and be a good Southern Baptist boy. And then from there, go on to seminary either in Dallas or New Orleans and somewhere in the South. Um, but my first semester um, of my freshman year in high school, or my freshman year of college in Las Vegas, uh, right after 9-11, my parents kicked me, my dad and my stepmom kicked me out of the house. And... Uh, but my plans kind of got blown up from there. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know where I was going to go. And the church brought me in. Uh, another Southern Baptist church said, oh, come here. We need help with we need help with the um, the youth and the worship here. Uh, it was First Baptist Church Las Vegas. And they, they brought me in. Uh, everyone around me was just amazing. And I was really involved also at the uh, Baptist Student Union. Uh, the, we had one Baptist Student Union for the UNLV and the community college it was and it met once at, on UNLV campus. So I was really involved with that. And they all just kind of came around me. I moved into a house with six other Christian guys, six other Southern Baptist Christian guys in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. um, which was a strange dynamic. And then I was at this church helping out with, uh, with the youth worship and leading worship a lot of times on Sundays. Um, the youth pastor there ended up getting fired for various reasons. And so they asked me to just kind of, as a 19-year-old, just kind of you know fill in for a little while until they found a new youth pastor. Well, I, I was filling in and then one night, you know, I'm like, well, I need to get these kids riled up. So I did a really manipulative, emotional thing that youth pastors do is, you know, you do the whole soft music and the raising of the hands and you're all sinners and put your sins up on the cross, you know, and like six kids ended up getting saved that night. Four of them ended up getting baptized and that got the whole church of like two, 300 people all riled up. And they then hired me as their youth pastor at 19 no Bible college, you know, I literally am pastoring students who are, you know, a year, year and a half younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> some of these, some of these kids were in high school with me, um, yeah. not yeah. in my youth group. So it was just an awkward situation. Uh, I did go bad quickly and often as far as I just, 
I went, I went from a Southern Baptist mega church to kind of a Southern Baptist medium, smallish type church. So I didn't, I, a lot of the crazy things we do, we did at the mega church didn't fly there. <laughs> and, uh, so yeah, that's where I was at. And then I did a lot of mission work, um, going to, we went, I, oh gosh, one thing I remember we did during the Salt Lake Olympics, we just harassed people. We, a bunch of us college students from UNLV went and, uh, tried to witness to people, um, made them think like we were, we had these jackets and, and badges that made us look like Olympic officials. And we'd go and talk to people and start conversations like, Hey, we have a survey. What do you think about this, 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 and this to get in the door? Totally shady, messed up. And then we'd present the gospel and people more often than not, people would just be pissed off at us. Like, why are you wasting my time? I'm here with my family. I'm here to enjoy the festivities. And it was this whole program called more than gold. And we give out these, these pens, these Olympic pens, Olympic pen trainings were really big at the Olympics. So we had these gospel pens we give out people would want. And then they realized they've been duped into reading the gospel on this little lapel pen, (laughs) messed up stuff. And that's the path I was on. Uh, worked at that church for a while, went to Reno to do, uh, Reno, Nevada to do a worship ministry for a while. When I was there, the church split. I saw more ugliness there, came back down, was kind of in a lull. And then there was this, uh, this church plan I heard about that was also Southern Baptist coming in from Georgia. I called them up. They said they needed a bass player. I played bass and, uh, got really involved there and they ended up hiring me as their children's pastor. <laughs> that's that, that's, yeah, that's where I, I went and, uh, was really, really involved still going to school locally and uh, the kind of plan was to keep going there they end up you know, licensing licensing and ordaining me as a pastor there and uh, that's where i actually uh, i met my wife my wife moved uh down from oregon where we're at now uh, to get a teaching position and she never she didn't grow up in the church at all she got saved at got saved quote unquote saved at 19 mm-hmm. went to college was really actually involved at the baptist student union at her college in oregon but they didn't call it a Baptist Union. They called it something else. She didn't realize it was Baptist. They're, they're really good at tricking people. They do the whole bait and switch thing really well. <laughs> and uh, But she they, she couldn't find a teaching job. She had graduated with a teaching degree. Couldn't find one in Oregon. Found out there was positions in, in Las Vegas. She had friends who moved to Las Vegas that she went to college with. Came down there. We'd actually met a little bit before that on MySpace, actually, um, of all places. On MySpace was a thing. <laughs> Yeah. And so I knew she was, I knew she was coming, started going to church and, uh, you know, I was just trying to impress her, you know, I'm this awesome children's pastor. She's this teacher. And, um, and I did a good job apparently cause, uh, within, you know, three months of us dating, I asked her to marry me. And, uh, three, uh, three, four months after that we got married, which is very typical evangelical thing, you know, For sure. yeah. quick engagement and was still working at that church. And I'm probably, I'm 26 at this point. And things in Las Vegas at that time, 2006, 2007, were starting to get really bad with the economy. Our church actually wasn't doing too good. We were meeting in a middle school, and it just wasn't going well. Money wasn't coming in. Uh, we, and we, had, you know, we were a small church that had a full staff. You know, we had a staff of like seven people, full-time people. And so I decided, well, it's time to move to Oregon, So, which my wife was very happy with because she didn't want to be in Las Vegas too much. When you grow up in Oregon and move to Las Vegas, the, just, the, just the weather change in and of itself is very traumatic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and culturally, she came from small town Oregon. So I moved to Oregon, started working at another as a Calvary Chapel uh, model church um, here in southern Oregon. Did children's ministry for them for a while. Then their youth, their their worship pastor left, so I took over doing worship. That from there, I decided, you know, I'm going to go to Bible college. Uh, we were only four and a half hours from Multnomah Bible College up in Portland, and we were going to actually move up there so I could finish my degree. Uh, didn't actually work out because the economy started getting really bad at that point. 
yeah. couldn't find, couldn't, I was working part-time at Starbucks during that time as well. Just, you know, cause you got insurance from Starbucks just for working part-time, right. which was amazing. And then I, throughout this whole time I was working at Starbucks just so I can keep medical insurance. So I could provide medical insurance for my wife and, you know, from age like 19 on, I was working at Starbucks and yeah, work, I was working at Starbucks, but we couldn't get a transfer up to Portland because things were going really bad with the economy. So I just decided I'm going to stay here in Southern Oregon and drive up to uh, Portland once a week, be there for two days and go to Bible college. And that's when I went to Bible college. Mm. I would drive up on Wednesday, come back on Friday and took classes that way. Worked out well, put a lot of miles on my, on my, uh, my 99 Ford Taurus, <laughs> literally drove that car into the ground. Yeah. I, I, the engine dropped somewhere inside the freeway outside of town. And luckily I didn't need anything more after that. It was not, 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 not long after graduation. It was kind of nice. <laughs> Drove that car into the ground. My goodness. Bible college, though, um, my experience there was was not horrible. A lot of people, I know a lot of people can't come from you know, really bad Bible colleges, college and, and Christian university experience. And then there was that. There was all the cultural stuff. You know, you had the 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 bench where the you know the the, the DTR bench to find the relationship bench you know where all the young <laughs> students would go like where's this going where's Jesus want us to go you know type thing and for sure kids getting engaged um, way too early um, in my in my humble opinion yeah Multnomah at that time had just had kind of a liberalization as far as like dress code like women didn't have to wear dresses anymore and you could have if you have tattoos you can show them and you can you, there's really no dress code for for classes anymore this was in the late 2000 mid to late 2000s right this was in 2008 2009 yeah yeah and so th- that just kind of just switched mm-hmm. which, which was good for me because i wouldn't have gone there if i had to like wear slacks and you know a polo to class every day especially when i'm driving up there so but it was really good i had a lot of really good professors from different backgrounds i had uh, professors who were um you know, Anglican, I was, I was really surprised about. I had one professor, though, in particular. His name was Brad Harper. Um, and I actually, to my, when I was in Reno, Multnomah has an extension campus in Reno. I was in Reno for six months, which I had mentioned earlier. I took a class from him. And when I took a class from him, he kind of revolutionized my thinking on Christianity. He had, you know, for the first time said, Christians don't have to be Republicans, which that literally, it sounds ridiculous to say now, but that rocked my world. To hear that, oh, I mean, I, I have another choice. Yeah, I would, I would, I would watch like the political conventions. And be like, man, the Democrats are talking about helping the poor. That sounds really Christian and good. But no, you know, pro life. You know, Bush is our guy. He's God's man. Right. And then I heard like it's okay, that's okay. Christians can believe that. And he was talking about like loving your gay neighbor and and things like that. I'm like, whoa. And I was just in awe of him and the things he was saying. And so I, when I went back to Multnomah. I got to meet up with him again and took more, more classes from him again. And he was the kind of professor where the really conservative students would try to butt up against him. But I'm like, this guy's written like five books and he has a doctorate. You're not, I don't care if he's right or wrong. <laughs> Sorry, bachelor student. You're not going to argue around this guy. Um, <laughs> uh, he was just, he was so loving. And by that point, um, it's been several years since I'd seen him before. He had barely remembered me. He had, he had, he had a son who um, came out as gay. And he talked about how much he loved his son and how his son is not an abomination and his son is made in the image of God. And he never really came out and said where he stood on the LGBTQ issue. And everybody kind of wondered, everybody kind of asked him about it. And he never really said. So we were all kind of wondering. And then later on, after I graduated from Multnomah, I had several, I, I got a very quickly got a youth pastor position in a very small town in northern, northern, northern California, like just a pop, skip and throw from Oregon on the coast. 
and had a lot of LGBTQ students coming and I just wasn't sure how to deal with that. And I really wasn't sure why I stood on the issue. And I, I leaned on him as my professor, like, what do I do? How do I love these guys? How do I have a welcoming environment? My thing was, I want to welcome them, but not affirm their lifestyle. And he was really patient with me. And mm. to this day, I really don't know where he stands on the issue, but he, he was so amazing. And I constantly leaned on him and just, he really opened up my eyes, this whole other side of Christianity and ways of thinking about the world and politics. And so, yeah, he, he was just absolutely this key to the beginning of my deconstruction and thinking differently about the world just from a political sense, just from a loving people sense, which was really key for me. Yeah. And in all of this that you've that you've talked about so far, you've framed your framed some of your experiences in a way that that shows that your opinion has has changed. You know, you've you've mentioned how it was a bait and switch, and some of the things you did as a pastor were manipulative. What was it that started to key you into that? Was there clearly this this professor was was a big influence in that as far as opening your eyes to other possibilities but were was there any other sort of major event that happened that that was a was a big influence on you and and sort of deconstructing or moving away from evangelicalism or was it just this continuous you know pile of of things of of evidence that this wasn't the only way to really be there definitely was the continuing pile of evidence but once i graduated bible college and I went to that small church um, on the coast of California. The church was um, in a small town. It's the last town on, on Highway 101. If anyone knows California, 101 runs all the way up and down California along the coast. Mm-hmm. It's the last town on 101 before you get to Oregon. Um, it's a rural rural community. It's mostly Hispanic and, um, and First Nations people. And there's this white Baptist church right in the middle of it where people from the town, the first town in Oregon would drive in, people from the other big town from California would drive in. Mm. And there was all these, you know, the, the, the Hispanic and Latin culture was there was amazing. And there's the, the Native American reservation was right across the highway from us. Yet no one wanted to reach out, which I found very, very problematic because um, our church didn't look like the community we were in. And I, every time I, I tried to press the issue, it's like, oh, they have their thing. The, the you know, this is literally what they said. The Mexicans have their own thing. They do. They can, oh, you know. man. So I just, I, I was like, you know, screw it. Um, um, there's tons of these kids here. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to engage them. We started doing a uh, after school program. We had a, another thing is we had this huge gym, only gym in this community, huge gym, which was never, it was only being used one night a week for youth group. That's it. Oh. So I'm like, so we opened it. We opened up. I, I, I just did it on my own. I opened it up. We had, you know, after school programs, kids could come play basketball. I couldn't get anybody from the church to really volunteer to help. So <laughs> we got people, we got people from the community to come in and help. We, I worked with um, um, social workers and, and other county organizations, the parks and rec department to get that opened up. My wife, who at that, at that point, she had her master's degree in education. She started tutoring and she was really passionate about social justice and, and, um, and, and reaching out to the community that way. And so we started this tutoring program and uh, the school was really involved and really happy with what we were doing. Um, yet the church never really got involved. They kind of let me do it, but you couldn't get them involved. You couldn't, they, and they always spoke poorly of it. Hmm. Um, as far as like the people there, which really, really bothered me. And so that, that was problematic. And also if, at my time at that church, we had 
a lot of different kinds of kids coming, um, some from the other towns they were driving in, um, some from the community. And I had a lot of, like I talked about before, LGBTQ students coming. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was one girl in particular, uh, she started coming consistently. She was really faithful and she was really um, loyal to me and my wife, loved us, we loved her. We, have her, we had her over at our house. And, you know, I'm still very conflicted about the LGBTQ issue at that point in my life. Like, oh, she's amazing. She's great. And she's, you know, wants to engage in spiritual things, but she's gay. What do I do? Uh, maybe she'll grow out of it. You know, she's only 17. You know, it's maybe it's just a phase and whatever. Um, but I was also, as a youth pastor, very, very excited that that the gay kids felt comfortable coming to my youth group at this little tiny Baptist church. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. youth group got to about, the high school group got up to about 40. I was super excited. And so I had um, I had a weekly meeting with my pastor. It was just me and my pastor were the only ones on staff. And I was telling him, yeah, we got, we, we have gay kids coming. There's one girl's coming. I was telling, I was telling him about her. It's like his first response was she's not coming to the, the retreat. Is she? Cause she can't. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean? Well, we can't have her sleeping with the other girls. Cause you don't know what she's going to do. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, are you effing kidding me? <laughs> like, <laughs> like all the kids in the youth group know she's gay. This isn't a big secret. His concern wasn't, you know, how is she dealing with it, um, being in a small community, being out as gay. Uh, that was not his concern. His concern was parents calling, complaining about there being a gay kid in the youth group. Hmm. And that just was like, oh, bothered me to no end. And then, you know, shortly after that, uh, he actually, that later that summer, that was over the summer, he went on a sabbatical. I preached and got in big trouble because I preached a sermon on social justice. Saying the word social justice in a Baptist church is like swearing, especially from the pulpit. <laughs> so much trouble was called a liberal. Which is a bad word for sure. Yes. Which is even, you know, gosh. And uh, so I got talked to by the, by the pastor again. You know, where do you stand on this, that, and the other thing? And, and it was, I was getting tired of getting called into the deacons and to the, the pastor about this stuff. And kind of the, the breaking point for me was when Obama was reelected in 2012. Um, I had stayed very silent on the issues. My, my pastor was very vocal from the pulpit, breaking, breaking laws by advocating for Romney, uh, which never really sat right with me. How you preach against the Mormons, yet Romney's, Romney's God's man. How does that work, pastor? Um, <laughs> yeah. So after, the, after, the, after, after Obama won that night in 2012, which I did vote for him, I just put on Facebook, hey, guys, remember – God's still in control. Everything's going to be fine. Cause you know, my Facebook was just lettered with, what are we going to do? This is the end. You know, he's going to take all our guns. You know, he's going to kill all the babies and you know, all this stuff. Like now that he's got a second term, he's just going to go all out. And I said, guys, God's still in control. It's good. And then I, that morning, that next morning I called into his office again and three hour conversation. He's just trying to drag out of me who I voted for. Where do I stand politically? And I just wouldn't do it. And he couldn't directly ask me because that was really illegal <laughs> yeah. for him to do. And at that point, I'm like, I am done. I'm done. I'm done. And then not long after that, they were kind of like, well, okay, you, we think you think you need to go. And and so I was actually going to go move back to Southern Oregon, Ashland, Medford area, uh, where I was living before, um, and go to go to school. I thought I'd be done with ministry, um, but then. My university called me up and said, hey, we know you're going back to Medford. Um, there's another church there um, that needs a youth pastor. How would you like to go there? And so I was like, oh, okay. I, I called them up and apparently no one had applied and I applied and 
it was you know it was it was a non-denominational Christian church, but theologically everything else they were the same. They were just you know conservatives in skinny jeans and tattoos. <laughs> you know the pastor was tatted up, skinny jeans, all, really young staff. The elders were all super old, but they wanted to get they all they hired a young staff, and that was just super dysfunctional. In what ways? Um, the pastor was very very manipulative. He played the staff against each other. He played me against other people in the staff, other staff against me. Would play mind games with us. Would play the elder board against certain members of the staff. I was in, after about three months there, I was in this constant state of, I think I'm going to get fired. I think I'm going to get fired. I think I'm going to get fired. Which is a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live. And at, at this point too, when we were in California, my wife and I had adopted three children from foster care. Who say California? Oh, wow. Two of them have very, very high, severe special needs. And uh, they were totally not empathetic or sympathetic to what my wife needed, what I needed, just as far as, you know, time-wise. Like, I can't be at this thing late at night that has nothing to do with me just because you want me to make an appearance. You know, my daughter's having some issues tonight. You know, I've already been at the church 12 hours today. Sorry. Not sympathetic at all. Jeez. Um, or when there's emergencies, I'm like, I, I can't make it tonight. I got this thing going on. My son who's having an episode. I can't, I can't be there. I'm sorry. My wife needs my support. I mean, this wasn't good. And, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was just really bad. And I just saw a lot of ugliness, a lot of backbiting. And I soon was like, I think I need to get out. I need to be done. And, at that point, I, I started there as a youth pastor, and then I started doing video and production for him. I got up a podcast for him, uh, did a YouTube channel for him, doing a ton of filming for him. They fired the worship pastor. I became the worship pastor, and they didn't pay me any extra for all this stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm literally working 60, 70 hours a week. I'm working my ass off. And constantly, I'm not doing a good enough job. I'm not, I'm not doing enough. I'm not there enough. I'm not sacrificing enough. Well, my spiritual, My spiritual walk isn't... Isn't, isn't, isn't deep enough. And I think that really kind of thing that, that really got to me was in staff meetings and meetings with the elders, they kept telling me, Oh, Andy, you're not being vulnerable enough. You're not telling us the deep stuff. We want to know Andy. So I started like getting into that, like, okay, here's how I'm really feeling. And then I would be reprimanded for it <laughs> or the things I would share would then be used against me later on in a meeting when there was an issue or something, well, you said this and, you know, that's not very becoming of a pastor now, is it? Truth is the pastor was, um, very just, he, he was, he was, it doesn't really matter, but he was very, he was a lot younger than me and hadn't finished Bible college. So he was just really insecure. Mm. He was worried that I was trying to take his job. So he was doing everything he could to get into a good position, um, to keep, keep his job. Finally, I was, I was just done. I, I told them that I, I've been doing youth ministry for a long time. I kind of just want to scale it back and only do creative arts and worship. And that's where my heart was. I was doing a, another a podcast for uh, nerdy stuff, Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, <laughs> Shameless, the Decast. Um, we just, me and my friends were talking about nerdy stuff. And I was really getting into that in film and movies. And um, they, they weren't enjoying that. Like, you need to be using your skills in that for the Lord. And I'm like, I need a break from the Lord right now. Give me an <laughs> Come on. Man. Yeah. And, and then someone actually in the church saw my skills that I was doing. And he was, um, he was actually a, a producer for a local production company and said, Hey, would you like to you know work for us? You know, maybe five hours a week. 
and just do some stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. And he had actually already checked my pastor to make sure that was fine. And like, oh, yeah, as long as it doesn't affect his work here. So then I told my pastor, yeah, they want me to do some stuff on the side for them five hours a week. Okay, yeah, that's great. And then when I came to them with the whole, you know, I need to scale back. Okay, we're, we the elders are going to talk about it. And then they said, oh, no, you actually need to leave because you took another job without asking us. And I'm like, uh, what? And so that 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 kind of devastated me as far as like, man, you guys taking everything I've said and done and used it against me and not really taking to heart what you say, what you don't practice, what you preach. Um, I know for a fact, my boss went to you and checked with you about me just doing some stuff on the side for them. And yet you're using that against me. And so they said, we want you to say that you're resigning and you're going to go work in the film industry and sign this paper and you will give you four months severance pay and you can't say anything about it. And and they and this is this meeting actually where they did that was at five in the morning. <laughs> oh my God. So I'm like, uh, okay, where do I sign? And I was done. And luckily the producer I was working for saw what had happened and they gave me more hours and I decided, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm done. And uh, I'm done with being in ministry mm-hmm. and I'm going to go to, uh, I'm going to go to film school that same day where they, they fired me kind of, or made me resign. I uh, went to the film school here at Southern Oregon university and talked to the head there and it's like, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I love film. I love storytelling and I'm pretty good with a camera. I've done a lot of editing, you know, for church all these years with podcasts and videos and YouTube. And this is what I'm going to do and kind of, you know, went full fledged into that. Yeah. Which, if you ever read Blue Like Jazz, which I, I both recommend it and don't recommend it, um, <laughs> there's, there's that point where, where Donald Miller goes to read college up in Portland, Oregon, and he's confronted with all this stuff and all these new ideas he had never heard before. Yeah. Start going to film school at Southern Oregon University, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I believe. I don't know if I'm a Christian or a Buddhist or just a really liberal Christian or none of the above. Yeah. I'm a, I'm definitely a spiritual person and all these new ideas and perspectives and, and just having, you know, people who were interested in me for me and my background and showed interest in who I was and not for what I could do for them, which I never experienced in the church before. It was always this kind of like, what can you do for me? Or how can you make me look good? Mm. And, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been there for the last year and a half. I'm doing a lot of freelance stuff, um, working for a production company pretty much full time. Um, working for some companies in Ashland, helping them produce podcasts actually, and just navigating that graduate in June and, uh, graduating in June. Don't know what I believe I've, I've interacted with a local church, a, a UCC church, which I actually love the pastor there. She is, she is great. Both pastors there are amazing. Um, they've been so great to me and gracious to me, just hearing me out, you know, they understand my struggles and, and trauma I had in ministry because they, 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 experience a lot of the same just pressures of being in ministry. Yeah. But you know, they're fully affirming and you know, it, it's amazing. And I tell them, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. And like, that's okay. You're still beloved by God. We still love you. And we completely affirm you no matter what you believe or who you are. And I've never heard that before. And I'm like, yeah, cause it was always conditional. <laughs> it was always, this church is amazing. You know, they fly a rainbow flag outside the church every Sunday. It's just, it's a gorgeous, wonderful place. And I don't know if I believe the same thing they believe in, but I love being around them. And so mm. it brings me to where I'm at today. Yeah. Yeah. That's especially that last part of you feeling like you were done and then sort of being pulled back in. Oh yeah. That feels very relatable. I, 
I can definitely relate to that of like oftentimes being feeling like you're on on the cusp of making this sort of decision of like okay I'm not gonna I'm not gonna associate with this sort of community anymore but then something happens that sort of triggers a new opportunity to be in that sort of space mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden you're you're back in it again and I yep. think that that I, I think that one of the things that we sort of learn just being in evangelical spaces even just sometimes even more broadly Christian spaces is we sort of attribute that to like providence or the hand of God or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. I even preached on that one Sunday. Like I I remember preaching about God's, you know, sovereignty and providence. And I was like, you know, I was going to leave ministry, but he brought me back and brought me here. And yeah, so much BS. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like you, you sort of, even in the way you you speak about your experience, you you did have a sincerity when you when you said that, right? Like that oh yeah, definitely. I, I absolutely you, believe that. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. It must have been God because there's no other explanation except I like the paycheck, and that's what my degree was in. You know. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So how many years, so what, what was this a few years later you are forced to resign and then you, you are able to enroll, like, where is this in your sort of in your timeline? What, what year is this happening? That all happened in 2017. All that last oh, okay. part. Okay. So there. very recently. Wow. Yeah. Luckily, because I, I did go to an Oregon school, um, that Multnomah the year before I got there, actually became a fully accredited university. So when I went to Southern Oregon University here in Ashland, um, everything I'd done before Gen Ed Weiss transferred over. Mm-hmm. And some people listening may say, that's the providence of God. I'm like, eh, it was luck. You know, um, <laughs> I was lucky. I got lucky that yeah. MoMA got accredited when they did. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that, definitely, because otherwise it'd be four years of you know, taking you know, philosophy and college algebra stuff. I just didn't really need to get a film degree. Right, yeah. So in 2017, some things had already started to sort of spin up online. This podcast started in 2016. Um, you mentioned in some of your promo stuff that that like this that's sort of around the same time you discovered the evangelical community online. And I know I always sort of feel a little weird just talking about that on this show because it feels a sort of na- sort of navel gazy. But it's, oh yeah, <laughs> but it's um. 
it's relevant to the project you're working on now. So Absolutely. how did you discover the evangelical community online and what sort of led you to the project you're on now, which is the documentary that we mentioned at the top, which is called The Exvangelicals? Um, kind of a really weird series of events. Um, I was going to film school and I think it was my second term, the winter term and had a really supportive, just great professors there who were very curious about my background. Um, Ashland, Oregon is a very, very, very liberal town in Oregon. Um, Southern Oregon universities, it's a very, very, very liberal university. Um, I think advocate magazine named it as one of the most friendly LGBTQ public universities in the nation. Amazing place. Love that place so much. And they're just so like, I don't want to say that the youth pastor loved on me because that just sounds weird, but they, they just show me so much love and so much just genuine interest in who I was. So I got this really close relationship with them and they were encouraging me to tell my story as far as my experience. And I was in an editing class where he, they wanted us to actually write our own, own narrative and then film it and then edit it a certain way. In a previous class, a screenwriting class, I'd written a little small screenplay about an experience I had with, you know, when I was back in Las Vegas before I got married with this young young man named Jamar who had kind of a similar deconstruction experience. He was working with me at Starbucks, and he, he, was, he, was, African, he was African-American and uh, in a very, you know, very evangelical black church and was having um, – struggling with his feelings of, of, of same-sex attraction, as they called it. Um, right. you know, he, he was struggling with the fact that he was gay. Yeah. And he struggled and he struggled, and he went to his pastor and told him. And his pastor and his family said they were abomination, kicked him out. And uh, one day he, we were closing together at Starbucks, and it was raining in Las Vegas, which was really weird. And I took him home. I was like, I'm, you don't need to ride the bus, dude. I will take you home. It's raining. I took him home, and he, he told me that whole story because at the time I was, I was working at a church as a children's pastor there in Las Vegas. And um, that that – that's his story really kind of just shook my world. Like, Oh my gosh, like they called you an abomination and they still won't talk to you years later. And cause he really wanted to be a pastor, but he was gay and he, he, he his church and family couldn't reconcile that. And so they called him abomination, kicked him out. So I told that story and how that, that experience um, changed slowly began to change the way I started thinking about the world. And with that, I, they encouraged me to make a, a little short film about it. So that's what I did. I uh, couldn't cast guys, so I, I cast two women in the parts and just kind of told my my story through them. And it was kind of the first thing I ever really directed hmm. uh, in film school, like as far as like not like you know quirky little YouTube videos you know, with my I use my daughter or kids in uh, because they were available. <laughs> yeah, I had actors and full full crew, and I, if I could do it again, I would do it a billion times differently. But I did it, and then. One of my professors um, was really moved by it and said, you know, hey, Andy, you might be interested in, in this community called Exvangelical. Um, I've met Chris Stroop before, and, you know, they're, they're saying a lot of things you might resonate with. And I had mm-hmm. never heard the term before. I had no idea. And then and so I, I, I followed up on it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, these are my people. Like, this is <laughs> it. Like, here, here's my, my tribe, my people. And it was just uh, I, I discovered – um, not, not just the Exvangelical podcast, but so many other podcasts and community. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is just, I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. And I, cause so, so for so long, I felt like I was the only one. Um, at that time, my, you know, my wife was also going through a very similar thing. She hadn't grown up in the church like I had, but and this was another struggle we had. She had 
told me while I was still on staff at that last church, like, she's like, I'm an atheist. I'm like, what? You can't say that. No. And she's just like, I'm an atheist. You know, I can fake it though, because we need a paycheck. I'm like, and that was like six months before everything happened with me leaving. And so I'm like, oh wow, this is, this community of people are absolutely amazing. And I found, found the, found the Facebook group and it just was really just, it was therapeutic for me. And that's uh, good to hear. It was so needed. And just to have that community there when I just needed to bitch and moan and be like, people suck and church sucks and just kind of get out all my my anger I had. Mm -hmm. They were there and no one ever chastised me and said, you know, you shouldn't say those things. You shouldn't be so negative. And, you know, that was something I needed to do at that time. I needed just to get out there and just give the finger to the evangelical world and like forget you guys. And I need someone to listen. And they were there to listen to me, which was absolutely amazing. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, 2017 anger was definitely very high back then. I mean, we were all still in shock from Trump winning and and it being because of evangelical support for Trump. I mean, that alone had caused a lot of people to reckon with their, Mm -hmm. their anger and even really incite new, new anger really, because I mean, it was just so despicable. Um, not to de- derail things, but but I mean, within 2017, a lot of people were sort of reckoning with, with like, okay, this this is the group that taught me my morality, and they just betrayed all of it. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> you know exactly. So like, exactly. in 2017 was absolutely the time of of raging against evangelicalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, clearly for very personal reasons too, especially for for everything that you you were just going through back in 2017. Mm-hmm. So you you developed this short, and then you also floated this idea on Twitter one day to do, hey, what about a documentary? I'm in film school. Yeah. And then you got a lot of response very quickly. So tell me about that. Yes. Um, so I just I, I floated this idea out there. I was kind of thinking, okay, you know, next year I'm going to have my capstone. I'm taking advanced documentary. What what are some things I can do? And the, and the requirements for capstone, or, you know, I didn't have to do this major production, but I need to do like something, you know, like 20 minutes and significant. I'm like, what if I just do this? And I just off the cuff, you know, phone in my hand. And I'm like, Oh, I'll just see what they do. You know, what, what do you guys think? Hashtag evangelical. Chris Stroop saw it, liked the idea, retweeted it. And at that <laughs> point it was just like, you know, the craziness, um, immediately just, Oh, you should totally do this. That'd be great. Oh, where can I, where can I give? I, I was completely overwhelmed. And, uh, the professor, who um, it was funny because the next day the professor who actually tweeted at me about Chris and Evangelical came out to me in class. He's like, "Hey, so it looks like you're becoming popular in that community." I'm like, "I don't know what happened. I just floated an idea," um, <laughs> and I, it, it was so overwhelming. So I'm like, "Okay, guys, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna do this." You know, we're really early in the process, and you know, you learn pretty quick on, on online. Don't if, you, if you're gonna say if you're gonna say you're gonna do something, be ready to hit, you know hit you know hit play very quickly. <laughs> right. Like, okay, so when, when, when is it going to be in theaters? I'm like, I just had this idea two days ago. <laughs> so I, I got on a stock footage yeah. site quickly, put together a little trailer, which was not very good. Um, just to get something out there. And then I put that out there and then I started getting emails. Oh, these long, long thought out heartfelt emails. People wanting me to just tell their story or consider their story or just get perspective. Mm hmm. Stories of how people were molested um, by church staff, how 
you know, like I talked about before, um, gay or, or trans kids were, you know, struggling with their sexualities and they're, they're completely rejected by their family and church and mm-hmm. one thing after another. And at that point too, I realized how, how privileged I really was because I remember, I remember, I remember I pitched and moaned when I put out the, that little short, it was actually called paradigm shift. I put it out there. It was kind of the first thing I put out into the world about, Hey, I'm not really a Christian anymore or I don't know what I believe in. I lost, I lost like a hundred friends on Facebook and I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm being so persecuted for this. And, and at that point when I read those emails, you know, a few months later, I'm like, oh, what do I have to bitch about? I am a middle-class former evangelical pastor, straight cisgendered male. This is, you know, nothing compared to what evangelicalism has put so many people of color, so many queer folks, so many women through. Mm-hmm. I am insanely privileged and I've got to recognize that it, it, it blew my mind and it, it, I just had to kind of come to grips with that. Like what, what evangelicalism in general has done to women and people of color and, uh, and, and queer folks, it's just blows my mind. And, uh, and I've had to come to grips with my, my, the part I played in that as a pastor, especially in my earlier years as a pastor and, and in high school as well. Being Southern Baptist, you know, we weren't very friendly to um, to queer folks. We weren't. We had women had their roles. They, you know, they had to do what they were supposed to do, and they couldn't be in leadership. Yeah, uh, people of color had their own churches. Like you have your church. We have you have Spanish speaking church. You have a black church, and we're the white church. And then there's the poor white trailer trash church. You know, and it was just so segregated. And I I was a part of that system, and I really had to come to terms with that. And uh, but yeah, these emails blew my mind and i'm like wow i my own experiences doesn't even scratch the surface of what um so many people have been put through through this culture Mm -hmm. that's bigger that's bigger than any church or organization it's just it's so toxic and uh really it it broke my heart for lack of a better term yeah and speaking as a as a filmmaker and someone who who works in video uh, you know, I, I write and I do this podcast, but video is something that I've, as a creative person, been able to really crack. What is it about video that will help to really bring these stories alive? And what is it about like film and documentary that will help to let people know that just like, just like you learned that, that they aren't alone, that there are people that have gone through these things. And yes, evangelicalism was absolutely built for white men like you and I to succeed at the expense of Mm -hmm. everyone else. Yep. With that in mind, like what, what is it that, that, that we can do to, to help share those stories? Um, big thing for me in, in film, I mean, I love storytelling. I, and I love, I love podcasts. I love video. I work for um, one of my part-time jobs is with the Ashland New Plays Festival here in Ashland, Oregon, where we're putting out a, a podcast, recording new plays. And I, I just love storytelling. I love the elements of story. And I think it's probably what drew me to evangelicalism so much, just the Bible, elements of story within the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with video specifically, just the opportunity for, for the evangelicals, the documentary, to put faces with the names and the voices and to highlight 
so many different people, so many different backgrounds from all over the, hopefully all over the country, maybe even the world to really put the stories of people of color and women and queer folks up to the forefront mm-hmm. um, and, and show and, and, and show them and let them tell their stories. I, I don't want to be one to just, you know, bash on, on any one person. I mean, there's, there's people who I think within evangelicalism who deserve fair criticism. I mean, Mark Driscoll's experienced that for me so much. He's blocked me. Um, <laughs> that was a uh, proud, proud here. day. Proud, same proud here. day. Yeah. <laughs> He's very quick out with that block button. He is. He is, which is funny because we used to be, we, I, 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 there was a point in my life where I thought I was going to become an Acts 29 church planner and he, he was all buddy, buddy with me. So, oh, awesome. um, on Twitter. So, but yeah, just be able to, to put it within a narrative, tell, tell that overarching narrative of people who have, went into evangelicalism, why they went into evangelicalism, whether it was family or, you know, you felt a sense of belonging, kind of the deconstruction process and what's happening afterwards. And to just show the diversity that it's not, it's not just one type of person. It's not just one gender. It's not one race or, or sexual orientation. This system has really done some toxic damage to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And to really showcase that, and I'm not looking at first, you know, I'm going to, I'm thinking I'm going to bring down the evangelical system. I'm like, yeah, I want to tell people's stories. I want to highlight the stories of people who don't normally get highlighted, um, who you, you who, who don't, who don't, um, people, when people think of evangelicalism, they don't normally think those people, they don't, you don't normally think of and bring their stories to the forefront. Mm-hmm. I have a film professor who is always encouraging us, you know, those of you who are white men and they're very, my, my university is very upfront about this. Like those of you in the film industry who, you know, you're white straight men, use your privilege for the greater good, leverage your privilege, not mm-hmm. to, you know, give a handout to people of color or queer folk or women, but to like, when you have an opportunity to highlight someone, highlight a person of color. You know, highlight, you know, queer folks, highlight women, have women on your crew, do, do these things. Cause a lot of times they are far more qualified than, than the friends who are around you. And it's really tempting in the film industry to just hire your friends around you. And usually your friends around you look just like you. Um, mm-hmm. that's the reality of it. Um, but being encouraged to do that, I've also been able to have so my, my friend group at school is just so diverse and amazing. You know, if you would have told me, I would have friends who were not only people of color, but trans as well. I, I, I could call up on the phone and be like, Hey, you want to hang out? If you would have told me that years ago, I, I would have said you're lying or from another universe. Mm. But yeah, so just be able to highlight that. I'm, I'm, I'm blabbing on here. I right know, but to, to take this opportunity to really just push those stories to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And that, and so with, with that in mind, where, are you in development? What are you, what's your, cause you have finishing school in front of you right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's sort of the, the first thing, but then what's, what's the sort of plan? Cause this, this is a pretty ambitious goal you have. Like this, this yeah. is a, a, a feature film idea and that's not a, that's not a small thing to, to develop for sure. It is, it is not. No. Um, luckily, um, where, where I live, Ashland, Oregon was movie maker magazine, which is an industry industry magazine for the film industry named Ashton, Oregon, the fourth, the fourth best smaller medium sized town to live in. If you're a filmmaker. 
Oh, wow. There are, there are actors here. There are filmmakers here. There are people who live here in the, in the Rogue Valley in Medford, Ashland, Oregon, who fly to L.A. for two weeks, work on a film or a set, and then fly. And they live here. Their residence is here. So it's an amazing place for filmmakers. So there's a lot of resources. Um, so being in the film school, I've gotten connected with some producers who work pretty consistently with Netflix and some other other studios. And just they have helped me develop a budget to really put this out as a full length feature film that's going to be on the festival circuit. Um, it's going to be, you know, as an, as an independent film and given me certain, you know, ideas about connecting with studios and things of that nature. And within the process, we've, we've raised $3,000 on the GoFundMe page and that has just kind of helped us buy. We've, we've bought, we've bought and purchased or now have access to all the gear we need to make this film happen. Great. Su- super excited about that. Where. The next bit of money is going to come gonna come as the travel cost, the lodging to get a, the, the crew and make, make all that stuff happen. Because I'm also really committed to making sure everyone on this film who, who works on this film is, is, is compensated fairly, um, that we have a diverse cast and crew. Make sure all, all those things happen because I, I don't only want to, you know, talk to talk. I want to walk the walk on this. So with so we're kind of just moving forward with that. My, my last term of film school is coming up. I just finished finals today and for this term. Next term, I'm um, actually going to be in an advanced documentary class and doing my capstone. And with that, I am going to be um, working on a 15, 20-minute version of the film where I'll have about six students uh, on a team with me where we're going to go pretty much in Oregon and talk to you know ex-evangelicals in southern Oregon and probably in the Portland area as well, we're hoping, and produce a 15, 20-minute film, a miniature film, a short film about this. And it's with that, our hope is to then take that piece, you know, shot in 4K, you know, really high quality and take that to the studios and be like, we did this. We can produce this. This is a story that, you know, I, I hate putting it this way, but it's the way you got to talk to film people. It's a story that will sell. It is hot right now. You know, you look on CBS, look on Newsweek. This is a hot story right now, especially in Trump's America. This is a story that needs to be told. And we are the ones to do it. We are the ones who need to tell the story. And to go to them and hopefully um, get a studio on board and to give us $200,000 and to really make, you know, hour and a half, two hour film featuring, you know, evangelicals from around the nation, around the world mm. and telling their arc and their story um, about not only you know, how they went to evangelicalism and, and their deconstruction, but what are they doing now? How is their life different now for better or for worse? And I really also want to focus on the mental health struggle big thing for me is just dealing with the loss of identity. Mm-hmm. My identity was stuck in evangelicalism and I've had to, you know, I pray to my Lord and Savior Barack Obama every day for Obamacare because I would not be able, I would not yeah. be able to afford all the therapy I've had to go to um, since leaving evangelicalism. If it wasn't for Obamacare, I'm so thankful for it. Um, but what does that look like? I've really kind of realized the, uh, the mental health struggles. I, I want, I want to delve into that a little bit and, and so people kind of get a different perspective on on what this system does to people, uh, and, and it's, it's applicable to you know any fundamentalist religious system. Mm-hmm. So, um, but some, there's something about evangelicalism, especially within the United States, that's just it's just kind of permeated into every part of our culture, uh, yeah. and into the media, into the politics. That's kind of very very damaging so where you know you have scientology which is very they're very upfront they're very you know not upfront per se but it's very clear where they stand 
there's a very clear organization. Evangelicalism is kind of this loose conglomerate of, you know, you have your folks in the yeah. family, you have, you know, all these different organizations, but it's never seen as like this big, huge thing like the Catholic Church or like Scientology. Right. So yeah. kind of just highlighting how different, you know, how someone who was in Pentecostalism or Southern Baptist or, you know, fundamentalist, conservative Baptist, how all their stories kind of look the same and what what that's done to them and how are they now making the world a better place or have they made their lives better or how are they still struggling? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. And that, that's, that's really cool. And I, I really am excited to see you really run after this and, and sort of tell the, tell these stories in that medium, because especially as you mentioned uh, within the moment in history we're in, like I'm very much a proponent of XVs telling their stories and speaking, speaking those things really just truth to power because evangelicals exactly. are the ones that are in power. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And so, uh, we're very uniquely qualified in, in, in speaking to that and being the ones that can really help to translate things, you know, because a lot of times evangelicals speak in code. Yes. Yes, we did. They did. I did. <laughs> and so being able to, to do that and to sh- share these stories that are both, important personally as well as politically is is really powerful and i'm i'm glad you're you're out there doing that where can people find more information about the documentary and how they can support the documentary is the gofundme still uh live the gofundme is still live we raised almost three thousand dollars um all future funds now are going to go towards actual production costs uh traveling you know paying and feeding crew um getting up and down any rental stuff we need it's going to help handle that. And um, so you can go to GoFundMe.com slash The Exvangelicals, and it's it's all there. Also, uh, on Twitter and on Instagram, it's just Doc on Instagram and Twitter. And we also have a Facebook, which I think you can go find from the um, GoFundMe page. It's there as well. And uh, Jayla uh, Damaris, um, who's actually composing the film, uh, an exvangelical from Canada, is is running is a kind of social media coordinator for the Facebook page. She's constantly posting amazing articles, and she's doing a lot of stuff within the evangelical community as well. I wanted to highlight her. She's going to be she's going to be composing the film. She's a film composer. Um, she has an amazing story, which we're going to be highlighting as well. Amazing person, and um, excited to have her on board. I just I wanted to give a shout out to her because um, she's doing a lot of stuff on her own advocacy on her own up in Canada um, for evangelicals and ex fundamentalists. So that's awesome. That's great. And do you have your own website or Twitter handle that you want to plug to? Um, uh, you can find me on all the various social media networks at Andy Herndon um, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, if you want to find me on Facebook, um, I'm fairly open to, to that as well. Uh, I don't post too much personal stuff on there. So uh, as long as you don't bug me too much. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, I've actually, I love how many uh, evangelical folks I've, I've connected with on Facebook. Yeah. Also my, my YouTube channel, I post all the evangelical promo stuff on that. It's just uh, youtube.com slash Andy Herndon. I do a lot of vlogs about just kind of the mental health aspect of, of being an evangelical and leaving evangelicalism and dealing with guilt uh, as, as a former evangelical pastor. And um, I found a lot of support on there and just putting evangelical content on YouTube. I feel, I feel has been very, good for me because I know YouTube was the first place I went to and there was nothing there at the time. Mm-hmm. 
So just having that out there and then seeing other people begin to po- post stuff on, on, on YouTube about their journey. Uh, it's been, it's really, it's, 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 um, it's a free therapy session for me. I just put my camera up and I just talk and I get to edit it. So, um, <laughs> that's great. I've had a lot of great engagement on there and, that's um, awesome. and connections has been good. Very cool. Well, Andy, thank you so much for joining me on the show today and, and telling me a bit about your project and, and about your life. I'm really excited to see what what's coming next for you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you uh, taking the time. I know it's almost 10 o'clock there, so uh, <laughs> I'm not feeling good. So thanks for doing yeah. this. Appreciate it. Oh, yeah, of course. Thank you. Awesome.